The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. This is the most amazing book. Most of you know this. In the first 18 verses of the book, he gives an introduction to it, and it's, uh, it basically is a picture of who he is and why he is here, why he has entered into this world as he has. It's chapter 1, verse 14 through 18. I'll read it for you in just a second. It's talking about how the Word became flesh. And that's a very unambiguous way of, of stating that, expressing the incarnation of God's Word written on tablets of stone is the way it's put elsewhere. In uh, John 1.14, it says, The Word was made flesh, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him. That's John the Baptist. Uh, he bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now, John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus. There was a, a human connection with him in their line. And uh, he came, he was sent in order to bear witness of Christ, so that we would know this is the Son of God come in the flesh. And he goes on, he says, For his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. That means grace instead of grace. And then he explains what he means by this. He says, for the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So the grace that Jesus brought replaces the grace that came through Moses when he gave the Old Testament to the people of Israel. So no man, he goes on, he says, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, that's Jesus Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father. Let me just explain one other thing. The word only begotten means one of a kind. Monogenes, one of a kind. And so he's saying that Jesus is one of a kind. He is the only one who is God and man, and he's the only one who was sent by the Father so that we could know the Father. The purpose of Jesus coming into the world was so that we could come to know the Father the way he does. And this, this, was, his, this was his assignment. Now, when it says that the Word became flesh, it's describing the fact that the incarnation took place. Jesus came to the world to be born as a man. He is fully man and fully God. And as we're told in Colossians, the first couple of chapters there, as it describes him, this is what sets him apart from all others, that he's fully man and fully God. He dwelt among us. The word that he uses for dwelling is the word tenting. Have you gone camping before? You went out and pitched a tent and slept in the tent and had fellowship with other people? And uh, that's what he's saying, except this is the one that what God did when he set a tent up, a tent of meeting in which he would go into that tent and meet with Moses. It was for their fellowship, and it was so that Moses would be exposed to God and come to understand who he is and get a close-up look at who he is and understanding of it. So the tabernacle was erected as God's command, at God's command back in Exodus 25. It tells us that he provides an exact pattern for this tent. And he ended up calling it a tent of meeting. That is, it was a tent of meeting because he met with Moses there and with others. And uh, this is what is going on here is Jesus, it says, has come to pitch his tent, but his tent is his body. And so he is with us. He was with them at this particular time. And uh, the pattern that God selected for him was his own humanity, the very descendant of Jesus Christ. 
the tent of meeting, the skene, the word for tent is skene, and in fact, uh, most of us are familiar with the term the Shekinah. The Shekinah glory of God is really a post-biblical word, but it refers to the fact that when God dwelt upon the earth, there was a glory about him, and that was one of the reasons why he did come and, and dwell on the earth, was to so that he could show his glory Because this is an interesting thing. The glory of God is what motivates us to worship Him. Sometimes people wonder why they don't ever want to worship. Well, maybe maybe you're not getting exposed enough to the Shekinah, to the glory of God, because this is why Jesus came, was to display His glory as He explained who the Father was. In the post-biblical world, the word Shekinah meant the presence of God and the manifest presence of God, so that what you saw overwhelmed you. It made you want to worship him. His glory was so overwhelming that those who were in his presence wanted to worship him. This is what this is all about, that Jesus has come into the world to dwell among his people. He wants to dwell among his people. That means he sets up his tabernacle. That's what the word is translated in the Old Testament. The the tabernacle of God was the Lord Jesus Christ at this point in time when he was with his people and they saw him. If we were to go back to 1 John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, they talk about the connection that his disciples had with him. They saw him, they looked upon him, they touched him, they knew who he was, and they saw that he was glorious and they wanted to worship him. And this is why sometimes we get weak in our worship is because we're not really paying attention to who he is. This is one of the great reasons that Jesus came into the world. And he says, and we beheld his glory. The word glory for in Hebrew is the word kavoth, which means weightiness. That's a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good word. That God has, there's something about God that makes him greatly important. We understand when we are in the presence of God that we are in the right place. We are where we should be because this is the one who created us. And so this visible manifestation, the, the Shekinah of God that's talked about in the scriptures, is about God being known to be at a certain place. And as they watch and see his glory being manifested, for example, you have many places in Scripture where the Son of God is accompanied by light. Uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And he he was light. And so when people were in his presence, it says they didn't like it because it didn't just illuminate them about something. It actually exposed them. They could see their own sinfulness and how they needed a Savior. And so many people avoided being around Jesus because the light that he was made them very uncomfortable. And so this glory of the only begotten means the glory of this one and only God. I love the fact that uh, the, the thing that motivates us to worship is seeing the glory of God. He wants us to see his glory, and he wants it to impact our lives. And so in this passage now, he's starting to talk about something explaining why we need the word to tabernacle among us. That's the expression that's used. He's setting up his tent and he's living in his tent right with his people. The reasons are given to us, and we're told four things that are true about this. The reason that he tabernacled among us is these four reasons. First of all, he did it so that we could behold his glory and thus worship. When we see him for who he is, we want to worship him. And uh, there was a, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the feast festivals that the Jews celebrated. And they remembered two things. They remembered God providing for them food in the wilderness. There was about six million men in that group that could serve in the military. 
So it was a huge group. And he was the one who fed them. Now imagine what it would be like to feed that many people. Think what it would be like to feed this many people out in the desert where there's no water and no food. And so, of course, what God did, he fed them supernaturally. The manna, or the bread from heaven, it was an initial picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our bread. He's the bread of life that from which we eat and we live in the presence of God. So he first wants to tabernacle among us so that we see his glory, so that we behold his glory and thus worship him. And then secondly, he mentions in verse 16, we receive his fullness drawn and we draw our life from him. We drink deeply from him. In this Feast of Tabernacles, what would happen? They had two big, very huge kind of displays to cause them to remember these two facts about God, that he provided food and then he provided water. Imagine providing water in the desert for over a million people. And this is what God did to display his glory and display his power to his own people. So what we are seeing here is that he wants us Well, at the Feast of Tabernacles, what they did, this is the way they celebrated the water. They celebrated the water by doing this. The priest would go into the temple next to the Holy, in the Holy of Holies, there was a pitcher, a golden pitcher that held water. That's not a picture, but a pitcher. And they would take that pitcher, these priests would take them down to the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam means the Pool of the Sent One. Who is the Sent One? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He was the one who was sent by the Father into this world. So they would go down to the pool of the sent one, and they would scoop up a pitcher full of water, and then they would take it on an excursion back to the temple, and they would take that water, and the priest would take it into the Holy of Holies, and they would pour out the water next to to the altar. And the reason was to commemorate the fact that God had been faithful to them. He had provided for them everything they needed, including water to drink. And there were no bottled water. There was no bottled water around. This was water that came directly from the living God. And so this is why we see his glory when we see these things. It makes us want to worship him. He's the one we are to worship. And uh, I've been going through somewhat of a trial lately. And uh, I've been trying to figure out how I can continue to include the Lord Jesus Christ in my life. Because the Bible is clear. You've all heard this song. There was Jesus, it's uh, Dolly Parton and uh, Zach Williams, I think, sang it. And it was a Dove Award, it was a Christian Music Award. And what the the song says, it's all about the fact that there are times in your Christian life when you're suffering, when you're going through difficulties, that you can't figure out what God is doing and you don't see Christ, you don't see him anywhere. Now what the Bible tells us, it tells us that he gave us eternal life so that we could know him. And that when we live the Christian life, we know the Christ is with us. But this song talks about how living life, going through trials, we forget that he's there. And so this refrain that keeps on coming back, there was Jesus, is telling us that Jesus is always present. He is never absent. You may feel like he's absent, but that is more a sign of what's going on in your heart than what's going on with the Lord Jesus, because he is always present. And then the the second reason he gives for us, uh, for, for Jesus tabernacling amongst us is, We receive his fullness. He wants us to receive his fullness. That is to draw our life from him. That is, we are to drink. And when Jesus said in John 7, 27, is the the account of this Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus, it says that all of a sudden he spoke out very loudly so everyone could hear him. And he said, if there's anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
out of his innermost being, he said, whoever is trusting me, believing in me, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living waters. And then John, get this, John is 85, 87 years old, and John explains what he means. He tells him, he says, what he was talking about was the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit had not yet come, because Christ had not yet been exalted. He had not yet been resurrected. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is probably the one most important truth in Christianity and Christian doctrine. It's the fact that God raised his son from the dead. And he tells us here that if you come into a relationship with him, if you are trusting him, if you're believing in him, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Why would he put it that way? Well, it's the benefit that comes from it in the lives of those around you. The water that he's talking about is the very life of Jesus Christ. The third reason he gives us that he tabernacled among us is that we would experience his excellence. That is, we would live according to his grace. We would live according to his grace. That's found in verse 17. And then he says, and finally, the fourth reason he gives is that so that we would understand the Father, so that we would begin to live as a son and not an orphan. This happens all the time, that Christians, people who come to faith in Christ, don't get the gospel straight, and they begin to live as orphans, and they're, they're trying to please God in ways that he's not asked them to please him. He's asked you to trust him and, and rest your faith in him, and live your life out of faith in him. He goes on in, verse, uh, in Galatians 4, 6, he says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, the reason he says that that way, he's saying this is something, an impulse that has taken place because the Spirit has come to live within you, and you cry out to God, Abba, Father. Now, Abba, Father is an expression, probably the closest thing to it in our language would be Daddy, Father. And it's a term of endearment that he's so close to us. He's the closest person to us. And so we praise him. And so he says that the reason that Jesus came was to reveal the Father. He's the one who knows the Father, and therefore when he came, he revealed him to us. So because you are sons, Paul writes, God has sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In other words, God has provided for you. The salvation that he has given you in Christ Jesus is yours for all eternity. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 It says, do not think that I have come, Jesus says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I tell you, unless unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, and the scribes and Pharisees believed they were the most holy people in the face of the earth. But he says, "If if your righteousness, your holiness doesn't surpass that, then you are in big trouble. You will not be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But then he says, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. Do you remember? Do you remember that uh, thing that happened with President John Kennedy? John Kennedy. If you remember, there was a there was a photographer in the room with him, and he was taking pictures. And one of the pictures he took was John Boy, his son, being under his desk, sitting there quite relaxed. You remember that? And the the point was that he felt totally relaxed in the presence of the most important person in the world. 
Well, we are in the presence of Almighty God. Our lives are filled with this truth that has come to us because Jesus came and tabernacled among us. It tells us in Deuteronomy 4.12, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but no form. There was only a voice. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And he's saying that we abide in God's presence in Christ so that we can understand the Father and live like sons and not orphans. In other words, live in such a way that you know that God wants you in his presence. This is what was stunning about that picture. We're thinking, what would, why in the world would this boy feel comfortable under the desk of the most important person in the world? Well, it's the same reason you would feel important enough to be in the presence of the living God. I once had a, a young man tell me that uh, I was telling him how the book of Hebrews says that God enjoys your presence. He enjoys you coming into his presence. He wants you to come, and he wants you to settle down and feel at home in his presence. And he says uh, to me, he says, you know, that doesn't make any sense to me because my dad, when I talk to him, he always tells me, look, tell me what you want to tell me and then get out of here. I'm busy. And I said, well, let me explain something to you. Your dad is not like God. God isn't like that. He actually wants you in his presence more than you want to be in his presence. But once you, once you establish that, once you live your life in such a way that you actually experience the real presence of God, the glory of God in the presence of his people, you will not want anything more. That's, that's the most glorious of gift that we have from God, to be in his presence. And he counts us to be his. He, we are not orphans. We are instead, we are children of God. And we, this is why the new birth is called the new birth and not the adoption. It is called adoption in another sense because adoption was used in the Roman Empire. If a family had a son that really didn't live up to their expectations, they needed a son who had some skills because he was going to have to take over the leadership of their family. They would adopt a young man who had the skills so that he could fulfill that role. But that's not what God does. What God does, he takes us as we are, and he works in our life. He brings sanctification. He changes us so that we are able to actually uh, live as sons of God and fulfill what he has called us to do. In Isaiah 6, when it tells us that the hymn of the Lord's robe filled the temple, do you remember that? When Isaiah looks at it and he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because he realized he was in the presence of God. And he had not prepared himself at all in any sense. And so he is very, he's worried, you know, what's going on here? Because God was incomprehensible to him. But now someone has explained him, and that's Jesus, the one who is in the bosom of the Father. That's the way he's described. He's the one who knows him like no one else knows him. He is the one who can show you who the Father really is in your relationship with him. That's why he brought you into this relationship. He caused you to be born again, to be born anew by being joined to Jesus Christ. The New Testament teaches that Jesus is in every believer and every believer is in Jesus. That connection that we have with him is a revelation to us as we live our lives in fellowship with him. It's a revelation to us of what the Father is really like. What is the Father really like? You've been around families where a child uh, does not have a positive attitude about their parents because they're afraid of them. They don't see that this is exactly what God does in the hearts of people, is he puts something in their heart that they love their children, and they want to see them develop. They want to see them come to have confidence in them, that they, they love them and they care for them, and they want them to live 
in that kind of a way, in fellowship with them. These things of why Jesus was to tabernacle himself around his people is so that we would behold his glory, which always results in worship. And if you are worried about the fact that you don't seem to be drawn to worship, you need to stop and think about the glory of Jesus Christ. Start looking. It's all over the place. All you have to do is just read the scriptures. It tells us the glory of Jesus. Sometimes it's really good to memorize those kind of passages so that you can speak them to you yourself as you're riding your motorcycle. It really makes a difference. It changes the way you think because he is for you and he wants you in his presence. In Matthew 11, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Which means, come into my yoke, which was a way of saying, become my disciple, for I am meek and lowly and humble in heart. And uh, this is what he wants us. He wants us to live our lives in close fellowship with him. And that fellowship will produce in us a desire to worship him because we will see his glory And you can't work it up. You can't fake it. It's something that is a a reality in our relationship. And so we behold his glory so that we can worship him. We receive his fullness, and therefore we draw our life from him. This is why it tells us to drink. And when Jesus said, whoever is trusting in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, that's the consequence of having this relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the emphasis of this whole prologue in John is a revelation of the Word as the ultimate disclosure of God himself. He starts with verse 1, and through verse 8, he talks about how this is what God has done by bringing Jesus into the world. When we see him, when we are around him, we come to, to see what the Father is really like. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And so this is what he wants you to feel like. It's one thing to know it's true, but it's something else to actually feel the reality of it in your life, that you are an heir of God. What does that mean? An heir of what? Everything. Everything that there is. The God of the universe is the one who's created all things, and he says, we have become heirs. In fact, remember he says he wanted, he wanted his son, his son, to be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, you know what the firstborn is. It's the oldest. It's the one who's born. In the, so he's the primogenitor. He's the most important among the children. He's ready to lead the children. And he says that this is what he has done for all of us. He has put us in this place. Because we're sons, we are no longer orphans. We belong to him, and he loves us, and he wants us to know that, and he wants us to live our lives in that way. We're told in... Um, the book of First Peter, that that means we ought to always have joy, joy inexpressible and full of glory. Maybe you were saying that there's a song that's based upon that passage, and it's a reality uh, that this is what he wants of us. He wants in our lives, our relationship with him and our relationship with Jesus Christ to produce deep and profound joy so that we would live as sons and not orphans. This is what he wants us to know. In Psalm 97.2, it says, Clouds and thick darkness, talking about God. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. But guess what? He wants you to feel at home there. Even though it's a scary description as you, as you read the description of what God is like, he wants you to come into his presence and settle down and be at home with him. This is what he's called us to do. And he's equipped us to do it. He's made it possible for us to live in this way. 
We're told in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, I love the fact that God describes the saving, the way that Jesus saves us as something that causes us to want to draw closer to him, not to run away, but to draw close to him. It says that he has worked in such a way that he brings us close and we receive this life that is in him alone. And remember in First John 5, 11 and 12, it says, this is the testimony that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And whoever has the son has the life. And whoever does not have the son does not have the life. And what he's talking about is having Jesus Christ living in you means that you have his life in you. And this life, this eternal life that he's given to you, we're told in John 17, 3, that it is the ability to know God. You know there are certain people that you know. I remember going to a basketball game some years ago with a friend of mine. It was Bob Cousy who was playing. If you know who Bob Cousy is, you know that he was a very famous basketball player. And this was, I think, his last, this was his last set of games he was playing. And uh, I remember going to that game and watching him. I was so impressed because he had such incredible skill. But he wasn't God. He wasn't the Son of God. We have a, a Savior who is full of glory. And as we get close, we see this glory, and it causes us to draw close and worship him. And that's, and that's what he's wanting to do. He wants to see us. He wants to experience us worshiping him. So he is truth, and we can, we can know for sure that when we worship him, we're not having to make up a story. We're worshiping him in the truth that he has revealed in his word. When it says that we beheld his glory, his kavod, his heaviness, because we have seen what he's really like, we've seen him at work in people's lives. I was talking to a man the other day who was, has been going through a serious trial, a very deep trial. It made me realize the, the ability that God's given us, even in this pandemic, we can actually pray for each other. You know that they, don't, they will not outlaw that. They're not going to outlaw us praying for one another. And we can pray for each other because we have the same Holy Spirit living in us as they do in them. And so what we can do is we can come before him and we can call out his name and ask him to work in this situation and bring healing and wholeness and completeness. This is what he has told us to do. And uh, so I, I love the fact that uh, we, he wants us to receive his fullness. It says, because of, out of his fullness, we have all received even grace instead of grace. And as I mentioned, the first grace that God gave his people was the Old Testament. It was this revelation that he gave them. And now he's given us a second one, which is Jesus himself. And Jesus himself is full of truth and grace. This is what he says about him, that he's a storehouse of grace and truth. And that's why he's glorious. All the fullness was pleased to dwell in him. Don't you like that expression? All the fullness of God. He's saying all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. In other words, it was the most natural thing in the world for the living God to dwell in his son. And so when we get close to Jesus, we get close to his father. And this is why he wants us to come to know him. We have a great desire to experience his excellence. In uh, verse 17, he talks about that, uh, to experience his excellence. From Christ's fullness, we have all received grace instead of grace. And that means that God keeps on giving us more grace. And every time he gives us grace, he takes the old grace away and he gives us new grace. Don't you wish you had somebody did that at your home? That every time you got a new piece of furniture or something, they would take the old piece away and give you the new piece? I wish we had that. It makes things so much simpler, wouldn't it? And this is what God has done for us. He gave us grace in the, in the law in its own way, 
But now he has given us grace in the Son. It's a new kind of grace, and he is full of glory. He wants us to be, live our lives in such a way that we are actively engaged in a relationship with the living Christ because he wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to rest in his presence. He wants you to live your life for him and in him and through him. That is in his power as he empowers you to live for him. And then the last thing he says is he should, the reason he tabernacled among us was so that we could understand the Father and we could live as, as sons and not orphans. We don't have to live as orphans. I, I say that because I think a lot of Christians live as orphans. They don't realize that we're, we are. I used to do this when I would pray. When I confessed my sins, it was like this action of me telling God what a slime bucket I was, what a foul person I was, and then plead with him to forgive me. And then I discovered that in Scripture he had sent his son to die for us. And what he wants us to do is to simply confess our sins and to thank him for the Savior. And so instead of saying, I'm no good, I'm rotten, I'm lousy, I don't know how you put up with me, he says, just tell me, just confess your sin, and it'll be forgiven. We simply tell him what we want him to know, the sin that's in our life. And, and Jesus Christ forgives us and heals us and makes us whole. And this is what he wants us to get used to experiencing, to get used to experiencing the fact that you're forgiven and that you don't have to uh, live as an orphan. You can live as a, as a son, as a child. The Father loves you, and he cares about you. That's why he sent his son. And so uh, I hope that the reality of this truth sinks into your heart, and I hope it causes you to start looking at the Scriptures. You know, as Bible teachers, Bible teachers should teach the Bible with accuracy, that is clear about what it says, and, and speak exactly what the Word is saying. With uh, relevance, we should talk about what what is this what does this passage say about the way I live my life? How should I live my life? I keep on talking about it because it has hit me hard. When he says, Paul, the Apostle Paul was talking about what was going on in the church at Colossae and the blessings that God was bringing on them. And he said, ever since I heard of this, I have not stopped praying for you and asking that God would fill you with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding in order that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. You ought to put that in your little uh, notebook you carry around in your pocket. It's a wonderful expression that he, he wants you to live your life in such a way that it pleases him in all respects. And uh, it's a blessed life, and that's what he wants us to do. So let me pray for you. I'll stop here. Our Father, we're so grateful for the, your loving kindness towards us. We thank you for giving us a Savior who can forgive real sin like ours. You've given us one who has died in our place and taken the guilt and, the, and all, that, that, all the negative things about it that had rested upon us because of our sin. We thank you for the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. We pray that this week, as we live our lives, we would live it in joy over forgiven sin. Father, we thank you so much that you love us this much and that you would forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, thank you for a Savior who is alive and who is present. And I pray that we would relate to him. I pray, Father, that, that we would uh, interact with him and live our lives in fellowship with him so that we might please you in every respect, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.